Welcome, podcast fans. Paul Evans here. Got a little episode today in conversation with Andy Martin. Andy is an esteemed author and journalist and academic at Cambridge University. He might be one of the cleverest people in surfing. He's written books on such people as Camus and Sartre, two 20th century French philosophers. He's written books about Ken Bradshaw and Mark Fu. And most recently, he's written a really interesting book, Surf, Sweat and Tears, about Lord Ted Deerhurst. And we caught up with him to find out a little bit more about the book. First of all, thanks for joining us. Um, we're talking over Zoom, which seems to be the sort of telecommunication method of the moment. Um, you're currently in Cambridge, where your base is a lecturer, a lecturer in French, if I'm right? Well, I used to like to claim that I was the best surfer in Cambridge, which is not in itself a much of a claim until I came across a few Aussies hanging around here and one Hawaiian. So that blew that claim out of the water. Um, so you've written a number of books, which I like to talk about as well, and written for newspapers such as The Times and The Independent. Um, yeah. Tell us a little bit about your surfing journey, when, when you started surfing and, and, and how that looks like today, how, 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 how you get to surf from, from where you're based. I think I've been surfing in my mind for a very long time, actually. Uh, probably from when I was a kid growing up in East London. I used to fantasize about giant waves sweeping up the Thames and then they installed the bloody flood barriers. So that, that kind of destroyed that, that vision. Uh, so then I actually had to go off and do the real thing, but probably not till my 20s, actually, which is rather late in the day, of course. And then, you know, I managed to kind of finance my way by becoming, in quotes, surfing correspondent to the Times, which, um, you know, sort of managed to blag my way into. But, yeah, I started, let me think, yeah, my, my first wave was actually in Uluwatu, uh, and a 10-foot day uh, when uh, an experienced Australian said, man, you're not ready for this. And he was absolutely right. <laughs> so then I went to Australia and got the hang of it for about a season. Um, and I, you know what? I've never been back to Uluwatu at 10 foot, sadly. So, I, you know, one of these days, perhaps. But, um, you know, then I got dragged into Hawaii, of course, and the North Shore and that whole culture, which... Uh, you know, I found very, very seductive, I suppose, uh, which included um, the great Lord Ted, of course. I've just been reading up a little bit about you, and I saw some very high praise for Stealing the Wave, which is your book about um, Ken Bradshaw and Mark Fu, which Steve Bunce, who I'm actually a massive fan of, that's Five Lives yeah. boxing correspondent, said yeah. it was the finest yeah. sports book he'd read. That is, that's high praise indeed from an unlikely corner. Yeah, it's give him a fiver for that one. Uh, but, yeah, that... The funny thing about that book, yeah, Fu and Bradshaw, uh, because I, I, knew, I knew them both, and um, I, I, I was kind of shocked, obviously, when, when Fu died at Mavericks. And uh, I used to say that the, the, the thing about that was that Fu was much easier to interview than Bradshaw, because being dead and all. But Bradshaw was pretty prickly. And um, although, you know, a guy I admire in, in, in many ways, but the, uh, the thing that I... You know, the weight that he carried on his shoulders was that he had not died when when Fu had. And and he felt that that was a a very sneaky backdoor way to achieve more celebrity and fame than he himself had achieved by virtue of living on, uh, repeating himself and ultimately deteriorating. 
which, uh, you know, which is a fate that food didn't have to worry about. So that, that, there was a, yeah, that strange rivalry went on even beyond Fu's death. I've also been reading a little bit about the box and the goalkeeper, which is fair to say about two more slightly more highbrow characters, Sartre and Camus. Yeah, my, my two favourite French philosophers, but I actually modelled them on Fu and Bradshaw, funnily enough, although I don't mention that in the book. But Which one's which? I actually, uh, Camus is, is the Fu character because, okay. you know, he, he's, he dies tragically young while still a good-looking corpse. And Sartre would be the Bradshaw character because he lives on and becomes really grouchy and grumpy and, and was not quite as good-looking. In fact, nowhere near, but okay, set that aside. But uh, okay, um, Ken, by the way, I didn't mean that you look like Jean-Paul Sartre, au contraire. Uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, you know, obviously he's a great surfer and everything, uh, Bradshaw, so, you know, full respect to him. But he did say, after I'd written the book, you know, he moaned a bit about it, actually. Uh, for anyone who's, doesn't matter if you read it or not, actually, but Bradshaw phoned me up after he'd read it and, and uh, he really liked it at first. And then someone said to him, but Ken, you're the bad guy. <laughs> and then he called me back and started complaining about it. I said to him, look, this is not Tom and Jerry. There are no, you know, good guys and bad guys. There's a kind of complexity to this, you know, Ken. And, uh, but I don't think he ever fully accepted that. And then he said that he was going to go off and write his own version of the story. So, Ken, good luck with that one. I guess you're still working on it, man. <laughs> Would you say you find it maybe, I'm not easy is the right word, but writing about those sort of characters and those situations from a real kind of physically detached and also just generally day-to-day life, they're not people that you see around on, you know, you think of some sports journalist who write books, we're going to bump into these people at every event or every match or whatever it might be. Is that maybe an advantage for you to kind of sit there on the other side of the world and be able to take a, that long view? I I see what you mean. Yeah, I've got a bit of both because, you know, I've hung out on the North Shore long enough with, with these guys to get to know them pretty well. But then, okay, then I will from time to time drift off to Cambridge and then write about it from afar. So that, that is a very good point. But I, I guess I've got a more detached perspective. Um, every now and then, of course, I, I say something fairly rude about someone and then I have to get out the North Shore. And um, there are one or two people that, you know, I say rude things about, I don't even name because I don't want to get into too much trouble with them. But, um, yeah, it's, it's, it, I guess it's an advantage, actually. Um, not being, you know, being able to drop into the scene but not fully being part of it. I mean, it, some readers will say, okay, Andy Martin, so have you actually ridden a 20-foot wave uh, you know, why am I when it's huge and not messing around at pinballs and so on? And, and my simple answer to that is, no, I have not. Uh, but it's perfectly possible to, to imagine myself in that situation because I've ridden, for me, the equivalent of 20-foot waves. Uh, that, you know, my 20-foot waves are actually technically a lot smaller, but they're still huge and still potentially life-threatening and still pretty damn awesome for me. So, uh, you know, I have no difficulty imagining my way into the boots of, you know, Ken Bradshaw or, or Mark Fu for that matter. Um, but, yeah, that distance, I suppose I, I tend to mythologize them probably from afar. There is that risk. I think it's kind of built into surfing. It has this kind of, you know, magic and mythology and madness, I guess, 
attached to it. I, I suppose that the further away I am from it, you know, the more more I exaggerate it. No, exaggerate is the wrong word, but um, I can st- still feel it really intensely, you know, from from well through time and space, because obviously a lot of the things I talk about, talk about Ted Deerhurst, for example, he's been dead 20 years, but I can still sort of visualize it pretty damn clearly and all his various adventures. And so with everyone in Hawaii, it's far away. In fact, you know, right now it feels further away than ever, to be honest, during lockdown, but um, seems like another planet. Um, But uh, yeah, the, the further away, the more interesting, I guess. Okay, that brings us nicely onto Surf, Sweat and Tears. That's your, your current book, all about Ted Deerhurst. People have probably heard a bit about Ted, but maybe if you could just fill us in a little bit on the background. He's from, a, I guess, a sort of mid to low-ranking member of the British aristocracy, if there was such a thing. It was the, uh, the 17th yeah, I think Earl of Coventry. 923rd in line to the throne or something, actually, you know. Uh, and so he was technically, yeah, the, the son of the Earl of Coventry, so therefore Viscount. The Lord Ted thing you know, was was partly a joke on his part because he was running away from all that. The, the reality of Ted is that his his mother, who was American, and he, he used to say that, you know, got that in common with Winston Churchill, English father, American mother. His American mother took him off to the West Coast when he was aged about nine, I think. There'd been a, an unpleasant divorce, and basically she, she absconded with the kid. And um, the father came and got him back several years later, but in that crucial period, about nine to 15, uh, that, th- those were his formative years. He was growing up with a guy like Tony Alva, for example. He was his exact contemporary friend at school, uh, the great skateboarder, and uh, they went surfing together. And this was in Santa Monica, by the way, in, in Los Angeles. And uh, that pretty much, you know, defined his mindset and, and his ambitions from then on, which, which I was about to say exclusively surfing, but d- dominated by surfing anyway, actually, because he had other, other plans and schemes and visions as well, actually. But so, so then when he was dragged back to England and um, eventually, and, you know, sent back to school and to some extent forced to conform, you know, he, he, he spent the rest of his really short life, because he died at 40, um, running away from all of that, you know, the, 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 the history of England. And, I mean, he's still identified technically as, as a Brit, but, you know, he spoke with either half an American accent, half an Australian accent, I would say, actually. And, and then ultimately Hawaiian. <laughs> I mean, he, he was citizen of the world, like most surfers, I guess, actually. But it was very emphatic in Ted's case. When we talk, see him referred to today, there's a sort of... I wouldn't say it's a kind of a joke character. There's a slight bit of, there's something in there. The Brits always kind of quite like a plucky loser, don't we? Everything historically, yeah. we, you know, you're Eddie the Eagles or even your Henmans, although he technically did make semifinals in grandstands. But, <laughs> you know, we, we, like, we like a plucky loser. But he, at the same time, he wasn't a mug. He made the semifinals at sunset. What, what was he actually like as a surfer? And just put a little bit of context on that for us. I, I, I used to think of him as the most serious surfer ever because he, he went, he did despite being perpetually defeated. Uh, I think for starters, I should say this, that he's perhaps a better surfer than the records show, because I think there was a point at which he, you know, at the end of one year, I remember he became something like 231st in the world or something. 
I was pretty pissed off with that. And I do think he was underscored, and I wasn't the only one to, to think that, because uh, the uh, drawback of the sort of Lord Ted moniker, which he sometimes played up to, I mean, on the one hand, he was desperate to get away from it. On the other hand, it provided him, at the time when pro surfing was just getting going, you have to remember, it provided him with a certain sort of... Um, you know, iconic status and, and a little bit of a way in. But if you think of the way, let us say that judging now is very, very professional. Back then in the early sort of pioneering days, it was so subjective. And I think the judges were, okay, we'll give this guy a shot, but we're not going to score him properly because, hey, he's a law. He doesn't need to get scored properly. We're going to give a leg up to these, I don't know, impoverished guys from Brazil, for example. Uh, and, and so I think he suffered from that to, 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 to some extent. And therefore, but there is an, you know, on the other hand, okay, comic character. I, I think he would probably accept that at some level. I, mean, I was thinking of sort of Don Quixote kind of a guy, you know, struggling against, you know, imaginary windmills. Um, he, a would-be hero, so to speak, actually. And, and I think he had that heroic uh, mentality. Uh, which was reflected, you probably remember, that he started out this great charity called Excalibur. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, it was a real charity. And, and okay, that, that kind of flopped at a certain point. But, you know, charities are, are the norm now in surfing. Then it was very much the exception. So in many ways, he was a pioneer. But the idea that, you know, you, you, you would get a load of pros in and, and the prize would be a sword, and he actually had a sword, you know, forged for the purpose. You know, only Ted would think in, in that, you know, so he's kind of like King Arthur in, in his mind to some extent, actually. So he, that kind of British history, although he was running away from it, still he had it in his head for sure. So we've got a sort of low, lowish ranking professional surfer on the tour, but very, very charismatic, very well liked. He's got those iconic kind of Union Jack sprays on his board, which that sort of seems seems like so long ago now. I think it's got all different sort of connotations of your your far right or whatever, but a different sort of cultural cachet associated with it. Then he's on he's in Hawaii, spending a lot of time there. Um, and obviously, there's you know everyone knows about the sort of the murky kind of underbelly in Hawaii. And he's involved with a stripper called Lola, which is just sounds like something out of a kind of a treatment for a, a movie, doesn't it? But this is this is actually what happens. I mean, I met Lola. Uh, uh, at a at a nightclub in in Honolulu. I mean, the the funny background to that is Ted. You know, on the one hand, he had the desire, which we all have, but we we know we're not not going to find it to to seek the perfect way, of course. But he he mixed that up with seeking the perfect woman as well. And I was always trying to talk him out of that because I said, "Come on, man, you're just looking at a world of pain here." But he persisted in this theory, and then lo and behold, one fine well, I was going to say day, but it was a night like 3 a.m. or something, I get this phone call. I'm in Cambridge, and it's Ted in Hawaii, who has reversed the charges, by the way, back in the day, you know, hugely expensive. And I thought it was some kind of emergency, and so I accepted the call. And he says, I found her, the perfect woman, you know. <laughs> what the hell? But he finally dragged me over there and introduced me to Lola in, the, in, in this nightclub. And indeed, I had to admit that she was pretty perfect, although I did imagine that there was a certain amount of bioengineering perhaps involved in the whole thing. But uh, still, he was convinced that, that she loved him. I was a little bit skeptical. 
and they were supposed to get married. But the main drawback of Lola, although she was perfect in many ways, was that, and, and this I have discovered about the perfect woman, is that, there, that usually a bad guy will have managed to track down the, the perfect woman before you do. And uh, that such was the case with Lola. So Ted, 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 therefore, you know, was on a collision course with the with the dark side. So essentially, he's warned off. He's warned to stay away from Lola by some sort of pimp characters, some sort of underworld heavies. Yeah, I mean, I, I was actually in in Hawaii at the time when, when this happened, and he told me all about it afterwards. So that that really very much registered with me that a couple of guys in Hawaii, you know kind of polite, but they start threatening you with, you know, what do you think you could surf on just the one leg, Ted, this kind of thing. And, you know, that, that is rather worrying development. And, and I think Ted initially, because um, the, the, there was the threat was there, the threat of violence, which is quite huge. I mean, on, on the North Shore anyway, but uh, it was very, very manifest in this case. And I think Ted initially backed off, but he, he, he you know, he, I mean, in, in, as, as a kid, I mean, he literally fell off his horse and was put back on his horse. And I think he, he kept, and that's the way with surfing as well, he kept getting back on. And so it was in, in this case. I don't want to compare Lola to a horse or a surfboard, but um, he persisted uh, ultimately in, in a way. Whereas I, having met this uh, very bad guy uh, myself, tended to back off and favor discretion over valor. As a, as a reporter, I, I, was, I was warned off telling his story. And, and I thought, okay, well, yeah, well, I, I want to continue to be able to sort of, you know, surf on, on two legs rather than one. So I backed off. But Ted had the kind of, you know, mindset. He definitely favored valor over discretion, I think. And uh, this, to my way of thinking, probably uh, led to his downfall. And I'm assuming this isn't, the final chapter of the book. So you go on, a, is it an investigative journey? I mean, this is 96, it's quite a long time ago. Yeah, I mean, the whole of the book is an investigation, if you like. But the thing that, to, you know, to not reveal all, but to give you a bit of a sense of the thing, I did go to Hawaii Five O headquarters, uh, you know, in, in Honolulu and, and track down, you know, the, um, the police report yeah. on his death. And uh, as a result of that, I actually managed to find the, the last guy to, to see him alive and, and to find him dead, moreover. And um, so that was incredibly helpful. And, and the, um, the funny thing about that is it's really hard to do because, um, you know, the police aren't supposed to tell you about. And you, indeed, this goes back 20 years after all, but nevertheless, the reports are still there. You're not supposed to, you know, know who is who and who gave evidence and, and so on. And I, I came up against this and, uh, it, at the um, police headquarters in Honolulu, and uh, the, the woman who was kind of helping me there said, well, look, you know, I, I've got the report here, but I have to redact all the, all the crucial names so you won't be able to find that. So to literally take a pen and, and blank them out. And, and I said, oh, my God, you know, come all this way and on, on behalf of the family, I'm really trying to find out. God, it'd be so useful if only I could you know, find out the name of the last guy to see him alive. And she said, yeah, but unfortunately, I'm not allowed to, to let you see that. But in her very nice kind of slightly hazy Hawaiian way, she tried to follow the rules, but at the same time, didn't quite ink out one or two names carefully enough so that I could actually find out who it was. So, so yeah, it was investigative. And, and for me, it was, um, 
a relief, to be honest, because, you know, 20, 20, you know, I was in Hawaii when he died. It was very sudden. And, and you know, so I was relying on, on Hawaii for, you know, there were 10 different kinds of stories. I mean, Rabbit Bartholomew, for example, was convinced that Ted had died drowning at sunset. And everyone had a different story to tell. And if you ever go to Hawaii at, as a journalist and try to find out what the facts are, because look, normally I'm a fairly relaxed kind of guy. Mm, okay, I'm fairly skeptical about this and that. I go to Hawaii. Everyone is so, Hawaii, you know, so Hawaiian in Hawaii. <laughs> and they don't, and oh, come on, man, there's a good swell coming. You know, be cool. And oh, yeah, Ted, he was a great guy. He's gone now. Don't worry about it. If you're ever trying to find out anything, Hawaii is the worst place in the world because it is so mythic in its own way. And, and you know, plus, you know, to use the old uh, Sicilian mafia term, there's a degree of omerta there that people don't want to tell you because actually I interviewed a policeman as well and, and he said, oh, well, look, man, there are these bad guys here. We have to live here. You know, you're not going to hear that in Hawaii 5.0, are you? You know, but but that's the reality of the thing. And so, you know, they, they've got this kind of modus vivendi going on, you know. And um, so, but I think my, my own theory, and for, you know, for what it's worth, but okay, read the book, is that, yeah, there, there, was, there was a degree of averting the gaze going on on the North Shore. I guess the sort of story that my understanding or maybe things I'd read up until now is he uh, that he died of a heart attack or a suspected heart attack in the in his hotel room which always sounds a little bit bleak and sort of you just assume it was drug related as you know being surfing know. in Hawaii and that. Would, yeah. because you were friend, friends with him has this also been a little bit of a of a journey you did not necessarily clear his name probably isn't quite the expression but to sort of seek yeah. a, a something slightly more to see some kind of clarification it was right it was like you know anyone could say anything because that's like an andy irons type story isn't it actually and um that that's right even matt warshaw the great matt warshaw semi-omniscient you know author of encyclopedia of serpent and so on uh he that that was his story that that ted had died you know hotel room and so on and uh completely wrong and and you know he's corrected it subsequently of course and but, you know, everyone had it slightly wrong. And, and the guys who, who really knew what was happening weren't telling the truth in any case. Uh, may I just say, actually, since you're very kindly interviewing me for this podcast, if there's anyone out there who knows where Lola is now, I'd very much like to have a conversation with you. Because Lola, uh, I, I met her that time, and she was completely naked, by the way, actually. Uh, it was kind of, you know, it was kind of dark in the nightclub, but anyhow, um, so, so I, I saw the totality of Lola, but just the once, because since Ted's death, she has become remarkably elusive. But I heard a rumor that she'd gone back to the mainland. I think she was from California, so she may well be back on the mainland, but, um, I'm still, you may say, I'm still looking for the perfect woman. Um, would I be right in thinking that's Femme Nu, the nightclub, the strip club in, in Waikiki, where she worked? Uh, you may say that, but I couldn't uh, possibly comment. Okay, okay. Um, I just don't know if that exists anymore. But it decided, to... I've decided to go easy on naming names. Right. I might okay. want to go back to Femme Nu. Oh, sorry. But, uh... um, okay, where can we get the book? 
Where can we get a copy? Well, it's published, it's published by OR Books in, in New York. And they've done a very nice job of it, I think. Uh, and it's available from them. And uh, actually, I think if you... I did a, an excerpt for The Independent, in fact, not long ago. And um, I think there's even a, a, a discount code attached to that article. If people look up, you know, my story about Ted and the Indy, they'll find a discount as well, actually. So there you go. That, that you order it from them. And, but it's in a few bookstores. And, I mean, it was at the British Surfing Museum as well, actually, last I heard. But, you know, obviously it's, it's hard to, to go anywhere right now and buy a book, but you can order it online for sure. What about next surf, next projects? What's, what's coming up in the pipeline for you, Andy? Good question. Um, right now, I'm definitely back to surfing in my mind, of course, actually. But uh, the good news is that I hear you can still go surfing on the North Shore. And I was just in touch with Randy Rarick the other day. And, um, you know, judge, director of, you know, and bygone days of, of all, all the great events in the North Shore. And uh, he, he actually, funny enough, was seeing a massive silver lining in, in the lockdown because, A, you can still go surfing. Uh, you can't hang out on the beach, but you can still go surfing. B, there are no tourists. So, you know, he and his mates have sort of got it to themselves. So, so there you go. They're happy on the North Shore anyway. It's always good to, to think about that. But my next surf, hmm. Well, I've got a date with a friend in L.A. one of these days. So maybe I'll go back to, go back to Santa Monica, to Ted's Roots. That would be fun. Andy Martin, thanks so much for your time. The book sounds fascinating. Happy travels. Cheers, man.